run into the ground. We're back. Another week, another great guest. We got uh, creator of the antimatter fanzine, uh, member of Texas is the reason, new and original. The list goes on and on. We got Norman Brandon on the pod. What's up, Norman? Uh, not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> i think yeah in a good way in a okay good way. that's great we love we love I, some downtime you've been relaxing yeah. during these like especially hot days you're you're in new york right i am i'm in brooklyn i just um yeah like i am more or less biding my time before tour uh starts on august 25th okay um, is that another playing... thursday tour yeah so i've been i've been playing with thursday since the summer-ish of last year, and uh, it's been wonderful. I love playing with mm-hmm. those guys. And so we're going to yeah. be at least for sure on tour until like November or something, but possibly until Christmas. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I actually <laughs> caught you guys on uh, the White Eagle Hall show. Oh, amazing. Yeah. That was I a great like... show, except for when I injured myself. Did you? How'd you injure, <laughs> injure yourself? So... I have this ongoing, like literally decades long um, issue with what kind of shoes should I wear on stage? <laughs> okay, and it's I literally tales old as time because there's style, right? But uh-huh. like no one sees your shoes really, right? But it's sort of like you know you you have like I've had the same uniform for like twenty years. You so got like, an image to uphold, you know. Well, it's not even the image; it's literally <laughs> the same uniform. Like it's okay. the same shirt, uh, the pants change out but it's essentially the same style pants but it's literally the same shirt for 20 years i've i've never like i, same I wear this shirt in every style shirt or same no, no, no. exactly the same, same shirt the same shirt this wow, shirt is 20 hold years on, old i'm i'm looking this shirt up hold I, on. yeah i can't get uh yeah is this like an endurance outerwear brand shirt like i it's, i can't it's a, get it's a black any amount a, of clothing to last more than like a year and a half it's a black ben sherman shirt that really like it just works um, it feels like it, it may be moving towards the end of its life, but I yeah, still have one of those found... things like you take it off and it kind of stands on its own. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's definitely not as black as it used to be. Okay, it's, it's moving into gray territory now. Yeah, but, but it's, it's not. I'm looking at it right now, and it's not greening. That's what I'm shocked. No, about. no. Yeah, or sometimes. Uh, like, I mean, I sometimes I stuff turns it. like a reddish tint with like sweat i feel like i've owned like black hats and the second you sweat in them they're like changing color like a mood ring you know that's yeah that's a good point i mean i feel and i sweat a lot i'm a, i'm a total sweater um so that shirt has definitely seen it's been through hell and back but that said, shoes were the issue. <laughs> okay, well, and we so, gotta say, shout out to Ben Sherman, making yeah. apparently the most durable stage clothing. <laughs> if, the if Ben Sherman wants to sponsor me with an, an, a shirt that I can wear for the next 20 years, Yeah, I'm yeah, just down. one more shirt, that's all you need. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. through the, the latter I mean, half we'll of see. your career. I mean, for Christ's sake, if I, I would not have expected to be playing, you know, so far. <laughs> I mean, this year was actually, or was it, what am I 20 this is 2022 yeah this year is the literal 30th anniversary of the first tour I ever went on wow so that's like fucking crazy you know that as was res- that. resurrection in lifetime yeah you know uh, as as, resurrection as the uh you know as as the economy gets worse and worse we're forced to work longer and longer into our lives you know <laughs> 
It's we a can't fact. retire you know, like what's... we used to. So you here know, I am, thirty years later, and I'm injuring myself <laughs> because I still don't know what kind of shoe to okay. wear. Okay, so, so, so what shoes did you wear? So I uh, at that show at the White Eagle show, I wore this pair of sort of like it was like a flat foot atle- athletic shoe. It was like a white. A okay. white what shoe. Was the, what was the toe drop on those things? You know, were they was the it more of a lifting drop. shoe or a or a, or a, a running shoe? You know? no, no, no. It was a, it was a flat it was a flat sole. Okay, so, right. which which is usually fine, but it's better on like um like Vans or Converse, like where you have a very thin sole. This was yeah. a thicker flat sole. Interesting. I thought that because the whole thing is that like I I have these particular moves on stage that like I have literally. It's just at this point, it's a reflex. I just, yeah. I do, I have a thing. It right? helps you play and guitar better. You know, everyone like the tongue sticks out when you're hitting a certain riff, you know, you got to. It's, <laughs> it's what it is. But one of these moves that I just do is I have this tendency to kick my foot into the ground, okay. almost keeping rhythm. Oh, and, well, yeah, yeah. And so what happens is that could really fuck your knee up like mm-hmm. pretty bad and your shin for that matter. Yeah. yeah. And there were, there were, there were days where like you wake up and you're like, oh, fuck, my shins hurt fuck you know like because you just look basically just banging your foot on the ground over and over and these stages are like concrete so so i wore this white shoe it was flat sold and i thought like this was sort of the sweet spot because i'd used this shoe on a tour and i was i felt kind of good about it but what happened was uh the lace got untied and one foot stepped on the lace and twisted my knee a certain way that like oh, I, know that I immediately feeling. felt my knee go like mm, that fucking sucks. <laughs> yep, yep. And you know, I sort of adrenalined my way through the set, but when the show was over, I the so the backstage for White Eagle is up a very long flight of stairs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> and it's a I was placement. I was like limping up those stairs. It was <sighs> it was pathetic. And I just was like, fuck, I really I hurt myself like my knee is killing. So it actually took a few weeks to get to a place where my knee. I feel like now I'm good, but now it's making me rethink the whole thing Because now I'm like, oh, well, fuck, like I shouldn't even wear shoes with laces like I should just wear, you know, Vans slip ons, you know, like, yeah, like because I did. I was wearing those on a previous tour this year, and I remember walking off stage and being like, yeah, surprisingly. I feel pretty good about that. Like, yeah. you know, nothing hurts. Like, shit. So apparently, the shoes with the least amount of support are the best shoes to wear on that's, stage. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it, you got to get some of those. Like, I remember the pop punk bands of like the newfound glory era would literally have like anti fatigue mats on the stage, <laughs> like you'd have behind the like counter at Starbucks wow. or something, because they were doing like the the fucking posse jumps and everything. And I remember there was like an old alternative press article about. Do you remember that band story of the year? Oh yeah, they did all the weird yeah. stage acrobatics and everything. We're playing like, with them in August. Actually. I mean, they're it's a great live show, but literally, they. I remember in the alt press article, they're like, after all the shows, they're just fucking icing their shins because they have like horrible shin splints <laughs> from doing all this. <laughs> but bullshit. that's a fact. That's a fact. Oh yeah. I no, mean, literally for. For thirty years, I've been dealing with that. My legs should be way fucked. Like, yeah, I mean know, that 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 they're uh, not is just a testament to my sheer athleticism. Yeah. Clearly, but. I'm I'm a photographer. <laughs> I've worked production. I've like where you're just standing on your feet on like unforgiving circumstance like sur- surfaces like concrete or like you know like a wood ballroom floor or whatever. 
And it really, like, there was a, a wedding season where I wore loafers to try to kind of class it up a little bit. And I got plantar fasciitis that season. And it was like, <laughs> light, it, was, it was so painful and so, like, wow. it was rough. So I'm like, fuck it. I've, like, moved even beyond sneakers. I'm into, like, hokas now. Like, the super plush. I don't know what that is. They're, like, a running <laughs> shoe. But they have, like, they're just known for, like, hyper plush support you know and it's like wow if you're standing on your feet all day or, oh, or in the winter i'll wear i like, have seen that actually yeah or i'll wear like blundstones like something that has mm. like a nice like good good support and good sole on them because but so that's what i thought like i so one of the shoes that i've, I've been testing out was just a running shoe you know like a nike yeah. running shoe whatever and i felt like i fucked up my legs worse on those than anything else because those were sort of i feel like those are designed for a very specific kind of motion that which is sense, not yeah. the motion that i'm making on stage yeah so that, yeah it's yeah. <laughs> i love i i uh i had a joke uh i i said a while ago it was uh if you if you see the singer the hardcore band like switching into running shoes before the set like you know it's gonna be fucking crazy you know and i think <laughs> i think like people don't actually put that into uh into thought is like the kind of, you know, I think this is your chance for a signature shoe. I feel like Vans is selling signature shoes with everybody. We need the Norman Brannan, uh, like signature stage shoe with just like an extra cushion in the heel. You know, I mean, it, for, it is funny stomping. that you bring up the the anti fatigue mat because uh, I was I had this I was having this, this conversation with um, my friend Shug, who is uh, he's the he's a guitar tech, uh, predominantly for Taking Back Sunday. Okay. And so, but he was saying that he like went into, um, you know, get the custom Dr. Scholl's fittings okay, and like yeah, yeah. all this stuff. Like he's done the anti fatigue mats. Like he's basically also trying to build a better mousetrap <laughs> <laughs> for this kind of thing. Yeah. So, but I was like, you know, doing the mat feels too conspicuous. Like I feel like people up front will be like, what the fuck is that? Like, what is I that mean, guy doing? <laughs> you know, he's I think, about I to think... make change at the register any minute now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, th I think you're enough of a tastemaker that you could probably push it into into you know in normalcy you know? yeah yeah i, I think uh, you need to bring them back you might need to do a couple posi jumps here and there you might need to change the playing style a little bit just to i definitely don't do posi jumps anymore <laughs> all right we need Although, we need, the, I, we need like a, a, a like a stage coating that's like the floors they have at like um like gymnastic gyms that has like yeah. a very slight spring to it, you know? And and there are some stages that have that spring yeah. and that's really nice. I think that's that would like... actually probably fuck up your knees though eventually. Cuz like having that kind of like equal Maybe if you were if you were doing it upwards. all the time. Yeah. But I feel we like there's an, most of the stages are concrete. So it's like yeah, you're yeah. sort of you concrete know, or or like plywood with that really thin almost like moving blanket. Mm, uh, yeah on top yeah I don't, I don't understand i you know as a as a person with a child who now spends a lot of time in playgrounds it's sort of shocking that they don't have more stages that have like that almost, yeah we like, should we gummy... should cover the stages in wood chips i think is the is the solution <laughs> yeah i'm saying the recycled stages yeah reci re re um recycled like tire mulch like rubber mulch you know mm -hmm. it's funny that i'm so oblivious to this stuff though that like i couldn't even tell you like what's your favorite stage like in america that, like i'm sort of question. like uh i don't know like somebody asked me recently what my favorite venue was and yeah. i said union, yeah. union transfer in philly 100%. okay 
for a million reasons. Like, I mean, obviously it's a newer venue, so they really sort of like they put a lot of thought into what does a touring band want, need. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, just the whole thing. And then the experience for the for the crowd. And even the experience going so far as to where like they the stage is movable depending yeah. on how many tickets they've sold. That's yeah, that's, amazing. that's such a good idea. Everybody wants to feel like you're paying, playing a packed house. Right, so yeah. let's say you don't sell out union transfer, but enough people come, you move the stage up a little bit, you're done. Hey, pack crowd. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Doesn't uh, Brooklyn Steel does the same thing? They have the moving stage also? I think so, yeah. yeah. What a weird room. I, um, I don't love, I've never played Brooklyn Steel, but I didn't, I don't love it as a showgoer. Yeah. The The other thing about union transfer I love is, is their staff is, the probably the best venue staff i've ever met they're incredible i agree with that the yeah, whole I, thing was great i mean a great experience mm-hmm. it's bottom. it's so hats it's, off to sean it's yeah definitely it's weird to me that so many places that are like very specific in their use aren't customized for that specific use like like union transfer would be and that's something i i find a lot with uh, are you saying that the basement of the church was not customized <laughs> for bands to play i don't understand i mean but like places that are like very specific that, venues i you thought know? that sauna was intentional oh god i don't understand so how hot. it feels like that i mean i i haven't stepped in stepped foot inside the church in many years but mm-hmm looking at like hate five six videos i'm like i don't know that looks exactly the same as it yeah. did in 1994. oh no it's it's identical <laughs> i okay <laughs> i i i was a music photographer for for a long time and i kind of claimed to be the only person who could like photograph that venue well because i literally set up additional lights on top of the pas that like illuminated uh, the oh, crowd because wow. it's otherwise it's just a black hole you know if you're shooting from the stage but i i remember i'm sure I, the lighting techs there loved that yeah, all those all those lighting techs at, at the church. <laughs> um, yeah. What was the guy? What was the guy who did sound? John. Um, no, I know. Yeah. Yeah. What a... Yeah. He, wasn't he did doing much sound lighting for over us. There. Or he did sound for Texas. Right. Uh, in our last European tour Love and him. American tour. Love yeah. him. He used to. I used to work at a, at a Whole Foods in Princeton and I guess that's like sort of halfway between Philly and New York and he yeah. would when he was going to work I guess summer stage at Prospect Park um yeah, he would he stop did in and see him all the time yeah what a what a guy what a what a kind individual yeah the last I think time I saw him was right at uh we went to the James Beard house mm. in uh it's so it's basically for the James Beard Foundation classic and punk venue. Yeah, well, the bass player for Texas, who is a chef, uh, was cooking a meal at the James Beard House, and so he invited us to come eat, and it was amazing. So that's incredible. What a weird, what a what an interesting like branch of uh, of jobs everybody from that band got. You know, Chris is a stylist. Yeah, love it. Hair. I mean, Garrett's been doing the same job for. Fuck, I think he had it when the band was going. I mean, he's like a production manager. Right. Uh, I was gonna manager. joke. Yeah. I was gonna joke and say working it uh, limited to one. I've seen it. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, limited to one. He, uh, the owner of limited to one, actually, until recently, lived in the apartment that I lived in from 1994 to 1996. 
six. Get in, out of here. In the same bedroom, just completely fucking randomly. Wow. It was crazy. Wild. And it's like down the block from Limited One. It was the corner of 10th and 1st. Right. Um, and he told me, he's like, somebody told me you used to live in this apartment. And I was like, that's my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. And he, he was paying a lot more. Oh, but. I bet. <laughs> when, did you, when did you make the move to Brooklyn? I was the last of my friends. I did it in uh, 2000. Six, I want to say. Oh wow! Mm. Um, Where did, have so, you lived in the same place since? Um, well, so I I've lived in for the majority of that time. I live I've lived in Clinton Hill and on St James Place in two different okay. um, buildings. St James Place is the block where uh, Notorious B.I.G. and Lil Kim grew up. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Okay, and yeah, yeah. so it's literally like just biggie murals everywhere yeah. and like it's it's you literally just like i walk out of my house and somebody's playing juicy it's like that <laughs> every day um and then in the interim uh my partner and i lived in an apartment in williamsburg that we got for maybe six years that was like it was just a crazy situation where it was one of those classic like old brooklyn landladies who were just like look I know this place is worth more than what I'm offering it for, but I just, I want good people to live here. Yeah. The building's paid for, you know, she's like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was, uh, so it was like a two bedroom with a backyard. We were the only people in the entire building. Oh, wow. And Amazing. it was 1200 bucks a month. Jesus fuck. That's like hitting the lottery. Changed. Like we were just like, I, like, that's why I went back to college. I was just like, fuck it. Yeah, I got yeah, extra I have money. All this extra money. <laughs> <laughs> Man, but you, you also lived. Did you, did you guys live in in London for a little bit during the no. pandemic? Well, uh, so oh. I have like, okay, so I have a pair of friends in London, mm-hmm. uh, a couple who have a bedroom that they've basically called Norm's room. And so I go for these extended periods of time and like, I have a key. It's my, it's like my house. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so when the pandemic happened, I actually went to London. I mean, I guess people were starting to talk about COVID. It was um, the end of February and beginning of March. Mm -hmm. And my plan was that I was staying there for an entire month while my friends who are both doctors were coming to America they were doing all these conferences and shit. Mm-hmm. And about halfway through the month of March, that's when the shit started hitting the fan. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I could tell, like, I was still hanging out and like going to the pubs and, you know, <laughs> hanging out with my friends and stuff. But the vibe was starting to change. And I remember like on March 15th or 16th or something, I went to Brixton to see a friend and, like the entire tube ride felt weird. Everything felt a little bit off. Yeah. And then I was like, you know, like I'm gonna go into this Boots, which is the big pharmacy. It's like their CVS. I'm gonna go into this Boots and see if I could pick up some fucking whatever, like uh, hand sanitizer. <laughs> like I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, yeah. I was like, what do you what do you have to buy? Right. I don't know. Like I'll, I'm gonna go buy something. Give I me the kit. To feel, yeah, I wanted to feel something better about myself. So I walk in. And I find some things, but at this point now, the shelves were like ransacked, like people were starting to. Yeah, the the panic was induced. Yeah. And so I'm waiting in line and I I see this woman and she's in front of the cashier. The cashier is wearing gloves, like rubber gloves. And the woman says to her, why aren't you wearing a mask? And the cashier is like, 
well, we don't have any masks. And, you know, right now I'm only required to wear these gloves. Yeah. And the woman freaks out and she's just like, why isn't anyone taking this seriously? You know, like it was a real like, holy shit moment. And I literally like freaked out. Like I just threw the shit that I had and just walked out of the boots, got on the tube, went back to the apartment and stayed in the apartment until I had to fly home. That's wild. like I was, I was completely freaked out, and so yeah, so I was, I was essentially living there for as long as I can because I have sort of a weird life of leisure where I can do things like that. Because why? Not? Yeah, <laughs> if you have the option, why not? I need, I need yeah. some friends like yeah. that. I mean, I have a friend with a lake house in central Pennsylvania, uh, and I do flee the area there occasionally. That. But uh, yeah, it's not, it's not in a in a different continent you know so i need, I need my to my two sort of spots for me like if i could have a place in london and a place in somewhere in new england like i okay. love the sort of like new yeah, england I, vibe it's i love i went to i went to college in new england and i i miss it up there all the time yeah so i mean clearly like england in general is my yeah <laughs> yeah you like the old and the new england that's, that's old and new give it to me <laughs> yeah I have, I have like a lot of friends who are kind of relocating to like maine seems to be like a big thing oh, lately maine. and I, Maine's I, yeah, the yeah. Dream. I love Maine. i was just, just there the cold what what part of maine were you just that uh so i mean obviously we we were in portland but we obviously. spent more time somewhere else I see. So here's the thing. So when I travel with my partner, he's kind of the tour manager. Okay. <laughs> I, I essentially just fucking just sit in the van. You know, everyone and in a relationship, when we they, get there, they assume I get these there. roles sometimes, you <laughs> yeah. know? I, I love that idea. Just like, yeah, you, I trust you. Yeah, let's, let's, yeah. I'll have fun where regardless, you know? He so books you, the tickets. He has the itinerary. <laughs> he like tells me where we're going. I'll be like, where are we? Like, I don't know. It's just like tour. <laughs> Prints your vacation <laughs> laminates. It's yeah, yeah. Cool. He's got the little travel printer, and here's your here's your daily. It's, it's kind of like that. I'm not even. Yeah, kidding. you get to the venue and you 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 see what's in the mile and a half walking zone around it before sound you know, between sound check and doors. It's similar in the sense that, like, so when you're on tour, you know, you you know you have one thing that you have to do, mm-hmm. right? And then the rest of the day, you're sort of just like, well, what do I do? Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to go get lost. And that's usually what I do. I go to a city. I know when soundcheck is. I know when showtime is. And then the rest of the time, I just try to get lost. Yeah. Um, when I travel with my partner, he used to do these itineraries and stuff. Like, literally, like, we would have an itinerary of things yeah. to do. And then I sort of revolted. I was just like, I can't do this. I can't do the itinerary. It stresses me out. Like, I don't like being stressed out when I'm on vacation. So what we're going to do is every day one thing to do and okay. then we get lost yeah yeah yeah. and and that's sort of the vibe it kinda, I'm, a, it... I'm an over planner i don't know oh. about you i don't know about you dan i when i go on vacation i have like here's everything broken down by hour of all the things i want to accomplish oh, but you end up spending insane. the entire day in the car it's so bad yeah so, see i i have an interesting i i don't want to be like that and i i try not to um and that's why it sucks like going on vacation with friends sometimes like if your vacation styles do not match up, like no one's having a good time, you know? And it's usually me not having a good time because I just want to relax. I don't want to be on an itinerary. I don't want to be just like bouncing around to different things. And uh, speaking of like the pandemic and New England, when uh, I guess it would have been like September, October of 2020, when kind of things really felt like the pressure was 
coming off a little bit and they opened up New England to people in the tri-state to go up there without, you know, uh, negative tests and whatnot. I had like a relatively new car at the time. I had a bunch of travel rewards I couldn't use. Like there were so many weird, I got an artist grant from Jersey City and I just like, fuck it. I'm going on a road trip around New England. And I did two weeks and I booked everything through my credit card points. Uh, I was getting like two room king efficiency suites for like $89 a night. Yeah. And I did. Well, like that's, the- I mean, I should add that's why John <clears throat> is the tour manager as well because oh, yeah? he plays that points game like a fucking professional. Yeah, right? I'm, not, I'm not quite a professional, <laughs> but like I had all these introductory points because I opened a new credit card and then bought a laptop. And then you get all. Like, Put it this way you know. we did a week in Copenhagen and Stockholm. And when I came home, I only had to pay a hundred dollars. Oh my god, <laughs> that's amazing! Yeah, this this trip I did I did like two weeks uh, or two days in, um, like Cape Cod. I went to Provincetown. I went to Boston, Portland, uh, Bar Harbor. The and fact that you didn't call it P Town, you you're a poser. I mean, I that's fair. Want... It was my first <laughs> time there. Be... I'd never been. Uh, I you went need out there. a certain familiarity to call it P Town. Yeah, I I went there. It, specifically it does seem to like to... you're a poser to call it P Town if you're not Ooh. like a regular. Yeah, I'm definitely not a regular. So I went there specifically to uh, to get. It, go it to the feels very pod. like. It just feels very like you know P town. Like, town. <laughs> you know, also, I call it uh, on the cod, and everybody gets mad. They're like, "It's on the Cape." I'm like, "Nah, nah it's getting, getting cod." Just so you guys know. Yeah, it's also, like yeah, I'm heading up to Martha's for the weekend. You know, I've right. only been I've only been past Falmouth a few times. Like, I like Falmouth. I stopped there. Falmouth is where I stayed. Yeah, and you made me buy you a sweatshirt. So. A, a child size sweatshirt none of their sizes from their stores fit at all that was the most absurd gift i've oh, ever those received. are all like all gift shirts are like irregular oh, sizes yeah. yeah they don't make they're not gonna make like any sense they're on seconds. like a hundred different brands of blanks we we have uh i can tell you one place in maine where i've been because i bought the t-shirt it was camden Oh hell yeah! And uh, <laughs> but the it's totally an irregular T-shirt. Like the yeah. seam, like is totally diagonal. <laughs> <and> weird. <laughs> yeah, Andrew was like, "Oh, I have this Falmouth sweatshirt that I love that I bought, and it's like covered in like wood varnish or something." So I bought him. I think I tried <clears> it on, <throat> and I bought. He said to get an extra, or you told me to get a large. It was very ambitious, and I think I bought an XL for myself. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Why? All right, this, was... this is worse than asking what kind of shoes to wear on stage. No, we're, we're normally we talk about, a lot about like fast food on this podcast, yeah, but now we're, we're, this is a fashion I, episode. I'm on, on a, I'm on a fast food embargo right now. We're okay. not talking about that ever again. Perfect, perfect. Um, yeah, no, I uh, yeah, they fit irregularly. Fine. I was sh- I was overshooting. <laughs> they undershot. We did not meet in the middle. It's fine. I, well, I gave you my extra large, which also didn't fit me. <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, and luckily Joe Morrow bought me one on his next trip. So now I have three iterations of Falmouth sweatshirts. <laughs> and and how many of them fit? Building a uh, two two point five. <laughs> <laughs> just cut, just cut it out and turn it into a back patch on your denim jacket. You know, that's not a bad idea. It's not a good idea either. <laughs> it's not a good idea. Um, 
Norman, I understand you're a musician. Um, <laughs> I thought he was a stylist. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, when I'm not getting dressed in the morning, right. I'm a musician. The, <laughs> tell me about tell me about new and original. I'm sure I'm sure you've talked Texas to death, so we don't need yeah. to go there. But sure. tell me about new and original. Like super group, right? What do you want to start like that? Well, they uh, uh, new and just uh, re-released thriller right on vinyl or is it the first time it's been on vinyl what um no it was on vinyl back then but uh it's been out of print for like 20 years okay yeah because it's been popping up all over the place actually funny enough i didn't actually realize you were in new and original (laughs) until a uh, a bit ago (laughs) i put uh i put hostage on um we do like a mixtape every month of of songs we're listening to and that that made it on i'm like oh shit okay i guess (laughs) so but Uh, yeah yeah, it's been popping up all over the place it's it's great so that i mean that started uh jonah and i were so i met jonah in 1998 so after texas broke up Mm -hmm. i did um or was it set 97 maybe i did a tour with shelter again um they were sort of like they needed a guitar player uh it was sort of like a bury the hatchet tour because i think me and ray sort of had some issues and uh and so we were just you know he was like look man let's do this let's fucking put everything behind us and i was like i'm totally down for that let's do that so we just did that and uh and far opened the show in san diego i want to say and so i met jonah that night and we sort of just kept in touch um every time far would play at that time i started living in chicago and far would come through and we'd hang out and so uh the last far show ever was in chicago at metro and he the band did not mention it it was their last show Classic. uh jonah didn't tell me it was the last show was it, it was but it was knew. planned to be the last show i mean internally it, i don't know that it was planned but yeah. it was known oh. it, it felt very clear that this was the end of the road Ooh. right and so they played the show they left chicago and i was like okay cool see you later and i didn't think anything of playing with jonah at that time because he's in a band right mm-hmm. so about a month after that show deftones and snapcase come through town and i go to that show and i'm hanging out and chino from deftones says to me like you know so what are you doing now are you you playing and i was like nah i was like i'm just djing i'm you know i'm fully like house music like i don't want to play you know rock music and he's like i don't know man i think you should play with jonah and i was like i what am i gonna do break up far and he's like (laughs) you didn't hear it from me (laughs) and he just like you know he's like bar broke up you know (laughs) and uh i was like are you serious and he's like yeah call jonah (laughs) and that was like all he said and like so that night i called jonah and i was like I'm not saying where I heard it. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. It, it came yeah. in, a, in a breathy voice at yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm picturing. Someone whispered. I'm, I'm picturing Cheeto going, hey. Like, yeah, he, behind him. He, he put on his team Far sleep voice and, <laughs> and whispered it to you. <laughs> so, yeah. But so, you know, Jonah confirmed it, you know, and I was like, oh, it's like, I don't know. Like, do you want to play? And he was like, yeah. So, you know, he sent me a tape that night with like 25 songs on it or something. And 
you know, at first I was sort of like, I didn't know how to feel about like, you know, how to start this band because truthfully I hadn't picked up the guitar in a while. Like I was really into like house music and just, I'd started like learning production and sort of getting into that world. Um, and I really wasn't sure, but I also sort of like fancied myself a songwriter. Like mm -hmm. I like writing songs. I sort of was like, you know, is this going to be weird? Because like in Texas, there wasn't really that much, like Garrett wrote a little bit, but for the most part, I was writing the music. Mm -hmm. And that was, it. there wasn't like a pushback because it wasn't like, you know, Jonah was like a writer. Jonah has like a catalog. Oh, and yeah. being being the singer, it, there's a style of writing when you're the singer that I think is really interesting and cool and I can never emulate, right? Because unless I'm giving you which I did actually on um, on the one line drawing record that recently came out. There's a song called What I Know that I wrote the music and the vocal melody to. Oh, so wow. that's sort of like an interesting, that's like an interesting example of a collaboration that Joan and I have where, you know, we cross each other's lines. And, and I think that that's what, what sort of was successful about our collaboration in New End is that we just started crossing lines. And I basically was like, look, it's going to take forever for us to try to write an album from scratch if we're being real. So <laughs> you have, you have all these songs on this tape. How about I remix these songs? Like I'm going to write and rewrite and add and subtract and do whatever I want to these songs and let's make it a different thing. Oh, and wow. so that's, cool. that's sort of how that started. I mean, I think the most successful version of that, is the song better than this which when he gave it to me on the tape it was like a pop punk song and i basically just took the vocal melody and then rewrote the music underneath it completely that's insane and that. that was like super oh my god i was so excited yeah, to play it for feeling. him when i had done it <laughs> um so that record is is kind of like that. We were just crossing each other's boundaries like crazy. He wasn't like Norman. What the fuck? <laughs> no. But so the, the thing is that <laughs> song was done. Dog. <laughs> Look what you've done to my boy. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that like that's where it started, and I think like the other guys in the band saw it too. Jonah at that time had a reputation for being a little difficult to work with. And I was like, I don't know what everybody talks about. Jonah's fucking super easy to work with. And the guys in my band were just like, dude, that's because he respects you fucking clearly. Wow. Yeah. And it's like, and, and I think that that's why, you know, 23 years later, you know, here we are and we're still collaborating. You know, like I basically, that one line drawing record was a top to bottom collaboration. Although he, was the writer on you know all but that song he wrote the lyrics to that one song but i wrote everything else but there were you know every song on that record i can sort of like show you where my fingerprints are yeah and it was a really sort of that was like super fun because he basically came to me and was just like all right i really want to make a rec a record but i want it to be different i've done the whole like let me like indulge in my soloness kind of thing like, let's do a record where he's like, I don't know, if you want to play on it, play on it. If you want to write on it, write on it. If you want to fucking just tell me this sucks, tell me it sucks. Mm -hmm. Like, I just need someone else to be like, you know, that rules, that sucks, that could be better, this could change, you know, whatever. So there were even moments in that where, like, I've never fucked with 
like people that I work with who write lyrics, I don't fuck with that. Right. I kind of feel like that's very, but there were moments on this record where I fucked with it, where I was like, that lyric's not good, dude. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, but he would, he takes that as a challenge and comes yeah. back and he's like, like, I remember there was one song where he came back with like four different options. And I was like, you're awesome. <laughs> this is, this is what it means to be a songwriter to me. Like uh, looking for the best thing. It's, it's interesting that you say, um, you know, the people have said he's hard to work with. I've heard that actually from, from an R2-D2 drum machine that said he was <laughs> extremely hard to work with. R2 um, hates it when he shuts them off. Yeah, he's like, right? shut off, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, okay, so I have, I have one more big question, burning question for you yeah. before we get into this fucking thing that you have put us through. Um, <laughs> so you recently or within the past few years remixed a song from the the latest chamberlain record yeah how did that happen um so bizarrely curtis um curtis heard the remix that i did for owen for mike kinsella mm-hmm. um and he he liked it and he was sort of like chamberlain is at a point in their career where you know they put out a new record and you know, they've been sort of like a very dependable, steady sort of thing, right? It's very difficult to sort of like, when you're in a band that long and in a band with that strong of an identity, it's very different to sort of like break out and see your music in a different way. Mm -hmm. And Curtis, you know, is a very adventurous person, I think. And he's very creative as well. And he's definitely the member of the band that I feel like I've had the most sort of interesting sort of creative conversations with like he's a he's a top to bottom creative and um and so he texted me and was like you know i really love that remix you know there's a song on our record that i feel like could maybe get remixed is this something that you see and so he actually sent me a different song and i was like this is cool but i was like i don't know that this is the one and i started listening to the record a little bit more um critically and i and and so red weather just it's it, i don't know there's something about the lyric the mood everything sort of just resonated with me and i was like it's sort of like this so what i did was i i i filtered out the music and sort of like made a really bad acapella just a sort of wonky acapella that i could use to sort of make ideas with mm-hmm. and i came up with like a good section of what it might sound like and I sent it to him and I said, if this sounds interesting to you, I'll finish it. Just send me the original vocal. And if you're like, this is whack, that's fine too. <laughs> but he was like, no, I think you should finish this. This is really, really cool. So I finished it. And I remember like he sent me a, an email and he was like, I won't tell you what member of Chamberlain said this, but I'm just going to cut and paste this. And it was something like, at first, I thought this was a really terrible idea, but this song has changed everything. It's exactly what we needed. I fucking love how it made me think about this band differently. That's so and, cool. And that's, that's yeah, amazing. So, and I think that's what a remix should do. Sure. Like, I want people to reimagine who they are and what mm. what a song is. And that's you know, like I said, I mean, that's why I think the thing with New End was was fun because it it felt like I was remixing. A bunch of songs with guitar basically yeah dan so, do you remember what happened last time on this podcast when i talked about chamberlain 
Oh yeah, I got the clip. I can drop the clip with our our good friend Matt Pryor. Oh God, you're insufferable. Uh. <laughs> I was waiting for a time to do it. I didn't want to make Norman uh, feel like it was it was levied towards him. But uh, no, but yeah. I am insufferable. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the uh, so I I had one last question before we got into the record. Um, I'd be remiss not to ask. Uh, since uh, I also like to make zines, but uh, just, I, I mean, getting into antimatter is a whole separate podcast. <laughs> I'm sure there's too sure. much, but I'm actually curious of what uh, eventually, because you did an anthology of it that was put yeah. out as like a hardcover kind of uh, like coffee table book, I guess, right? And how did that all come about? Um. Well, so to be honest, that was like a thing where I was leaving New York and moving to Chicago. And that actually took years and years to make. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, I originally pitched the idea to Jordan in 1998. And I think it came out in like 2006. Wow. <laughs> or seven, maybe. <laughs> um, but the, you know, the, the crux of it is that basically like I... I tend to think of myself a little bit of uh, a little bit of a hardcore historian. Okay. Um, and I think the nineties are a very misunderstood time. And I think that antimatter as a fanzine was sort of one of the only things that I think really threaded together everything that was happening. Um, you know, one issue of antimatter would feature Snapcase, cause for alarm and shudder to think. And I think that sort of says everything. Yeah. That to me was the 90s. To me, those are three branches of the same tree. Mm -hmm. But to a lot of people, even today, I don't know that you're going to find that many contemporary hardcore kids who are like, yeah, I love Cause for Alarm. I love Snapcase and I love Shutter the Thing. <laughs> like, I just don't know that that's happening. Yeah. So I'm sad that the book is out of print, um, but I can tell you that we're definitely i am currently sort of discussing with a couple of different parties about both reissuing the book and the compilation for a 30th anniversary next year oh that so, would be awesome awesome well, uh, who was the original uh, so publisher my money the book was revelation revelation did it okay yeah cool. and then another planet profile did the comp Awesome. Yeah, I've been I've been looking to do kind of a compendium of, of some zine stuff I've been doing that's kind of become this anthology portion of my career, which is very, very cool and fun. But it's like at that point, it's like, oh, like these are starting to, you know, go out of print as well. I mean, they're self-published, but I usually only do like 100 each. Right. And, you know, it's like stuff. One volume's been sold out for for like a couple of years now. And it's like I want to I have enough photos now that I want to put them all together. And it's just been like even getting contact information for some of these publishers to like lend their ear and you know book publishing it's a weird thing where there really actually isn't that much money into it <laughs> that would go towards me no you know well, there's and, no, i mean look i knew that too like i actually yeah, for but, about a year I, I worked at a publishing company in the 90s and uh and i was uh, the i was an assistant to the executive vice president of sales for a publishing company yeah and so i saw it with my own eyes there's no money in this business <laughs> yeah yeah there's i mean there's uh it, it's kind of yeah it, it becomes kind of like what are your goals for this thing and i feel like it is part of kind of a 
uh, there's a really good thing actually relating to music photography. There was a, a PBS documentary called like Icons, and it had a lot of like Bob Gruen, Mick Rock, Henry Diltz, like a ton mm-hmm. of these. And I, I do a lot of work with uh, Morrison Hotel Gallery, which is owned by Henry Diltz in, in Soho. And I think it was Bob Gruen who was just like, yeah, the books don't make you any money, but they get you in the galleries, and that's where you sell prints, and that's, right. where, <laughs> that's where you make right. your money. But it, I mean, it's like I a passion know, thing. What? Like, I love photo books, and I love anthology books and like obviously the hardcore history in in the antimatter stuff is you know unrivaled in terms of just like a snapshot of that time just like you said so like yeah having a compendium of that stuff is important you know yeah and i also feel like it's a part of my i mean i hate using the word legacy but just for the fuck of it let's just say that word because i can't think of a better one i think but i feel like it's part of who i am Mm -hmm. yeah oh absolutely and i feel like the fact that i've been in this game for fucking thir- you know like 30 years of fucking touring and all yeah. this stuff that's like and and that's not even like 20 you know, years of that shirt hardcore show yeah. in, in 1986 <laughs> so it's like yeah 20 years of that shirt but like also I feel a legacy like the, it is a legacy <laughs> hanging in, in the, in the rock and roll hall hard thing, rock right? cafe yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. planet hollywood wants it <laughs> but um but i feel like you know there's there's a sense of uh needing to almost reintroduce myself um often like you know even with thursday i feel like i'm playing to this now new group of people who are starting to learn who i am Mm -hmm. and that's sort of interesting too um so antimatter is a part of that it's a big part of that oh absolutely and it's norman you said something about about four minutes ago that's been an earworm ever since and i need to ask you what you meant you said hardcore in the 90s was misunderstood. What did you mean? Um, I, I think that there are people who draw lines and there are people who erase lines. And the erasers are the people who sort of separate hardcore, 90s hardcore as like, uh, you know this it was just a time of metalcore and junko jeans mm-hmm. or you know whatever um guilty there there was <laughs> there was uh, but i mean i i feel like the drawing lines to me and the reason why this is important is because there aren't really and even when antimatter was a thing a lot of the people who i grew up with in when i started going to shows in the late 80s had already stopped going to shows by like 90 91 92 mm-hmm. so it there weren't a ton of people that were there to sort of draw the line between what was happening back in the eighties to what was happening in the nineties. There weren't enough people to sort of like create, there weren't enough people who were interested in even thinking about it in that way where you could create the through line and also sort of understand the connections that were happening. So what I was doing with antimatter for me was very deliberate. It was, you know, I was trying very hard to make sure that every issue sort of represented a range of musical style, a range of eras, a range of ages of people, young kids, older people in the scene, like sick of it all or something. Um, and really trying to make sure that these lines were being drawn as to say, we all come from the same place. We are the same. And the music of hardcore, I think what what the 90s was really, for me, was uh, a decade where we sort of decided as a community that the music 
wasn't the thing anymore. The community was, the ideals were, the ethics were, the ways of being were. The music could be whatever. You could fucking sound like John Cougar Mellencamp, like Chamberlain. (laughs) (laughs) And guess what? That was still packed with a million kids with the veil patches on their backpacks. Right. And, you know, that was the thing. We didn't give a shit what you sounded like. What we gave a shit about was, are you real? Mm -hmm. And if you're real and Chamberlain's real, we were like, come on board. You're in this fucking world. Let's do this. That's wild. That's cool. So yeah, I is, feel like did the internet ruin that? Uh, I mean, not solely, but there's there's a lot of things that sort of like played part in the way that that was dismantled. Hey, famously in that, I'm sure we're all huge Reversal of Man fans. Uh, inside that Revolution <laughs> Summer lyric book, uh, what's the first page says? Indie rock and the internet are killing hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to get that tattooed. I mean, to me, I I don't I don't agree because I feel like the biggest bands of quote unquote indie rock in the '90s or the bands that I loved the most. I think, you know, first of all, I would say that Fugazi was an indie rock band. Sure, that's that's my personal thing. Also, you take a band like Superchunk. Uh, I mean, you know, Mac was going to fucking hardcore matinees at CBGBs in the '80s when he went to Columbia University. So I'm not going to tell him that he's not hardcore. He's probably seen some hardcore bands I've never seen um, because he's older than me and he was there. (laughs) Um, You know, Dinosaur Jr. You're going to tell me that those guys aren't hardcore. Like, so Indy was just a, was by and large an offshoot of hardcore as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Sonic Youth, those guys were all going to hardcore shows. Right. So hardcore has left its mark. It, and um and indie is a part of that legacy yeah well, for sure speaking of um, speaking of indie rock <laughs> yeah speaking of indie rock uh auschwitz the meaning of pain <laughs> <laughs> i i gotta say I, I spoke to a couple mutual friends and i'm like oh norman's coming on uh he wants to talk about slayer and they were they were shocked so i really yeah a little bit so i'm i'm a, honestly okay so to preface this even further, Andrew called me right after you gave us the record to start digging into, and he goes, holy shit, this kind of rules. <laughs> I admitted to you that I had never listened to this record, so I was I, real stoked. I personally, uh, it's always existed, but I've never honestly, like, we talk a lot about passive listening versus active listening on this podcast, and we've come to a lot of revelations of from actively listening to things we've heard passively for years. And I gotta say, this record fucking rules. <laughs> Although, but, I has, do... but have either of your journeys ever really included metal? Um, not sort, not in this sense. Definitely, I've I was in like a metalcore band, so like I've always kind of. I mean, that's shocking to me. Like to be in metalcore bands and never have really like sat well, down with Brandon. I kind of came from the other direction. I came from okay. I the I came direction? into metal from from <laughs> hardcore. Like I. Right was in the hardcore world and then branched out into like the heavier sides of that. So I never came. So we actually, me and Andrew also talked about this a little bit before is in school. I think it's probably a lot different now, but in school, the punk kids where I mostly existed and the metal kids did not interact at all. 
they right. did not get along. And the people who are listening to Slayer and wearing the fucking Nightwish shirt and the Children of Bowden shirt were not hanging out with the kids <laughs> in the fucking Descendant shirt and the Newfound Glory stuff. Like, right. it was not happening. So it was kind of like there was kind of a wedge between those things. I feel like that might be different today because now there's bands like Power Trip and, you know, thrash-influenced hardcore that's been, like, wholly embraced, like Twitching Tongues. I don't know if you're familiar with those guys. But... Well, there's sort of, like, a rejuvenation of crossover, you know, yeah. which sort of, you know, in the 80s was a thing, um, yeah. you know, with Leeway and CSC and DRI and all these other bands that were sort of, like, doing it. But, like, you know, when Rain and Blood came out in 1986, so... This was sort of the precipice of my involvement with hardcore. I was sort of marginally aware at this point of mm -hmm. punk and hardcore. Uh, by the time I heard Rain and Blood, I knew who Discharge was and Stiff Little Fingers and uh, Misfits and, and sort of even Kraut, which was a New York hardcore band, like, uh, which I'd sort of like accidentally stumbled into because my fourth grade teacher's brother was their drummer. Awesome. And uh, <laughs> so it was like, you know, so I was, I was aware of, of these bands and sort of like starting to, to get my feet wet into punk. Um, and obviously I was aware of Slayer because this isn't their first record. Um, my brother was a metalhead. Uh, we grew up in New York City. And so I was young and sort of just a sponge. I just sort of loved music. And if you loved music in the 80s, and if you love music in the 80s in New York City, there were basically like a few paths to go. There was sort of new wave punk, mm -hmm. there was heavy metal, and there was hip hop. And I sort of didn't want to choose. I sort of liked them all. Yeah. And I was happy listening to them all. Um, but there was a there was a sort of that strain of of metal that was being known as thrash mm -hmm. eventually speed or death metal and then you know black metal out of that um it was interesting to me on on a variety of different levels and i you know i remember i saw metallica on ride the lightning tour opening for ozzy and so like i'd already gotten sort of like a, a taste of of that you know fight fire with fire you know kind of speed yeah. thing going on and i was like okay yeah that that's fucking that's fucking awesome i like that um because you know as you're as a kid you're looking for like the extreme yeah like, what's the extreme thing and like yeah, yeah. you know ozzy ozzy wasn't extreme anymore he wasn't biting bats anymore like it was like yeah bark of the moon <laughs> you know like <laughs> you know but that show for me was like that was metallica i was like yeah fuck they were killing it right yeah so the other aspect of it is that i grew up in a pentecostal home and so pentecostal just to be you know sort of illustrative about it that's born again christian that's speaking in tongues oh, wow. that's you know it's it's hardcore evangelicism yeah and um and it's very it's almost cult-like um but there in in pentecostalism there's absolutely a very literal satan and i was raised to believe in a very literal satan okay. so i had a very visceral sort of reaction to any sort of satanic imagery or or sort of language um and so the bands that were had started to come out like venom and merciful fate and you know bands that were sort of like i mean king diamond's coming out with an upside down cross on his head and i'm just mm. like whoa you yeah. know 
And I'm simultaneously like offended and attracted. Yeah. Well, because yeah, <laughs> it, it feels taboo, you know? It's Yeah. Absolutely. There, that sense that sense of and, and actually in my house, again, remember, I'm at this point 10, 11, 12, and 13 years old. Yeah. So I'm listening to music that is literally taboo in my house. Yeah. If my mother found these tapes, holy shit. Yeah. I cannot even tell you the wrath of God. So <laughs> literally. It's wild. I mean, I I grew up in the same, you know, my mother was was very very religious we grew up baptist and like i can't tell you how many times i bought the downward spiral because that record would be taken <laughs> immediately and like broke i i've probably owned you know i trent reznor should thank me personally for the amount of times i've bought that album um you know and in utero and like anything that looked like it could be dark was yeah, like immediately right. taken so i definitely well i mean i was I, I was definitely obviously we were lucky enough at the time where like you could make blank tapes mm -hmm. full of satanic music and yeah you know, she would be none the wiser mm -hmm. um and and that said you know in my brain i knew well, well merciful fate's sort of a different story because king diamond was an avowed satanist like he was that was his thing yeah uh but venom and slayer they weren't and they never claimed to be they just sort of like it was like horror movies on on you know yeah. vinyl basically yeah yeah and and so and i knew that but still when when you hear something like learn the sacred words of praise hell satan satan you're like Oh fuck! Like you yeah. feel like you're you're calling the devil. Into yeah, your yeah. House. It hits extra hard. It feels yeah. It feels like you're performing a ritual. You know. Yeah, and and so I'm not gonna lie. When I was that old, it wasn't just taboo. I literally was just like, "Am I calling Satan into this house?" Holy <laughs> shit! Because it was like it was again. I was raised with a very literal interpretation of Satan as a person angel who walked the earth yeah and and who was there to uh to essentially derail us and to bring us into sin and darkness and so you know the, all of that was sort of where the uh, initial sort of almost repulsion of these things come from but where the attraction came from that's sort of like been interesting to unfold over time because you know, so first I will say, Rain and Blood, the reason why this was the first thing I said literally was because when people have asked me, is there a perfect album? This is the first album that comes to my brain. Like, I cannot, I, I mean, truthfully, it's hard for me to even think of a number two. I can't think of another record that I listen to from beginning to end with no skips and just am completely like, fuck yeah. yeah. I can't. I'm trying and I can't like I've not made that record and most of my favorite bands have not made that record. So this record to me was just like, yeah, of course, this one was the one beginning to end. And I remember I actually did a promise ring interview in alternative press once and Davey uh, said, like, in my opinion, there are maybe only three perfect records. He said Prince Purple Rain. Uh, I think it was like I forget it. it was like I think it was a Simon and Garfunkel record mm -hmm. and Raining Blood. Wow. And so like <laughs> and and I was like, you know, I actually Purple Rain, I could I you know, I still think about that because I'm like Purple Rain was pretty close, but I still don't know that it was perfect. 
But Rain and Blood, when he said that, I was like, absolutely, yeah. That's, that's also, great. Also, if you, if you sneeze, the record's over. It's what, like right. 20, 25 minutes I think the original or yes. cut is 28 minutes, yeah. That's yes. absurd. So I, I bought the cassette, and it had the album on both sides. That was, I just read so- <laughs> that. Today. That's, that blew my fucking mind. It's smart. That's Somebody smart was marketing. like, oh, yeah, you just, you just flip it over and listen to it again. And I was like, yeah. But so here's the thing that's, that's crazy about that. So we talk about that now. Like, it's like a crazy thing. And maybe it is for metal. But when you think about the hardcore records that were coming out in the 80s, Speak Out, Break Down the Walls, Start Today, all of those are 30 minutes and less. Right. Yeah. And I know that because I made the I made tapes of them. But were they double sided? Like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, on the cassettes, yeah. Mean? Were they double sided uh, in the same way? No, no, no. But I I remember I want to say that there was a cassette version of it was like a mix of Speak Out and Break Down the Walls mm-hmm. or something like that, where like one was on one side and the other, one was on the other. So it was like it was a known fact that people made thirty minute albums all the time because yeah. what are you going to do? when your songs are all a minute long because you're playing that fast yeah, you can exactly. only do verse course verse course bridge course verse, you know you're yeah. like shit well it's I, a minute I, and a half what are i love there's, uh, there's no drone <laughs> breakdowns yeah yeah it's it's very funny right. actually so i when we do these records i'll usually go through like the genius page and like read the lyrics and a lot of the stuff and for this record specifically there is some like certified uh you know I guess details about the record from Rick Rubin, like a guest annotator, you know, on on genius. And he was like, yeah, like when I first saw these guys, like it blew my mind that they would just play so fast. And like talking about the, the, like the soloing and the guitarists, like, yeah, the solos don't make any sense in the song, but it's just literally (laughs) was it Hanneman and, and Carrie King. Like they're just, they're just trading off and it doesn't make sense, but it's, it feels like they're fighting in the song, and it. He's like, I love it so much because they don't need to be there, but it's what makes it what it is. And um, uh, I think also Carrie King mentions like, yeah, the songs are all like two and a half minutes because we get bored. <laughs> like we don't want to repeat yeah. things over. Yeah. And I'm like, ADHD. I'm like, that's. I wish, I wish everyone well, that was- had that. You know, that same feeling because sometimes we listen to these records people bring us, and it's like. 57 minutes. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Appetite for Destruction. I'm looking at you. Oh, God. Appetite oh, for Destruction was a slog. Not but a perfect record. By we love you, Dave. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's the best way I was able to describe this is if it wasn't Slayer, it would be parody. But since it's Slayer, like the fact <laughs> it's so over the top is ubiquitous. Like this is what we know Slayer to be. It is it is over the top, but it's I think one of the things also is that I think about um obviously because like I first heard it in the context of it being released at that time and yeah, which you is know, whatever. Awesome. And also having heard Hella Waits and Show No Mercy and Haunting the Chapel, like I was sort of primed for this, but not really ready for it. Yeah. Because what they I don't think did, anyone was at the time, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's really difficult to underestimate how, like, pretty much everybody was like, this is the fastest record ever. And it wasn't just fast in the sense, like, you listen to a lot of, like, later, like, let's say, 90s black metal, like, Norwegian shit, Mayhem or Emperor or, like, any of those bands. Yeah. And, you know, they're doing all those signifiers of fast, blast beats and shit. But blast beats, 
are sort of like a, a ripoff into fast. It's like, yeah, like, it's, because it's, the, it's kind the of like an optical are not illusion. Going that fast. Yeah, it, it's an it's, audio yeah, illusion. Cheat sheet. It yeah. seems like a cheat sheet. It um, is because if you listen to Rain and Blood, what makes that sort of different is that the guitars are literally going as fast as the drums. Yeah, yeah, the exactly. wrists on those fucking people. Like, <laughs> on, I cannot imagine. Like, seriously, like it is Steve Padula from Thursday and I. We always have this thing. So, like the um, if you listen to if it's here, I'm going to get back. It's ours from Texas. The reason the mosh part. Right. So part. when it goes, the when the mosh part happens, it's the only mosh part we have. So I call it the mosh part. Yeah, yeah. But when the mosh part happens, you know, it has that uh, that snare roll in, right? So <laughs> Daly's going really fast on the snare, right? But if you listen to the guitar, I'm going like I'm playing thrash metal. Yeah, and that is Slayer. That's the shit that I'm talking about. Because when we were Thursday was playing that song for a minute, and Steve was like, I can't do that. My wrist doesn't do that. <laughs> so, I, it's funny. So um, I was in a band that did, we were going to do a split with another band and uh, we covered if it's here when we get back. Oh, um, wow. And I could not fucking play those parts. <laughs> like, I, I, uh, I listened back to it. In fact, when I, when I opened logic for the first time on my computer, like that's what popped up. Like that oh, session wow. popped up and I listened back and I was like, this is horseshit. Like I would be embarrassed <laughs> for anybody to hear this. Um, but so, uh, Dan, he said something about soloing a little bit ago, which made me think that, like, we're we're all principally guitarists, right? Like, uh, as uh, musicians, yeah. Um, I have a, I have a really hard time listening to people solo. It just sounds like jerking off. I hate it. Yeah. Um, I. None of that, none of these, all of these solos feel purposeful. Like all of them suit the song. There's no, you know, extra in a way that I, you know, deem pejorative, I guess. But I don't know if you guys feel the same. Well, here, I mean, here's what I would say about it because I feel like I agree. I am not a solo person. I feel like there are like a handful of guitar players who I think play very tasteful solos, like Billy Corgan being one of them. I think his. His solo is fucking great. Ingway Mountain. Not Steve. <laughs> well, so okay, again, my so my brother that I've talked about, he's actually like a guitar virtuoso. And in the 80s, when he was uh you know, listening to mostly metal, that's what he was listening to. It was like Ingve and fucking Michelangelo, that guy who plays four necks at the same time. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, all those weird, you know, muso speed freak lead guys yeah and i was never i was never ever 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 into that um and even in metal i feel like you know i sort of get certain things like i think like the dual lead stuff from like iron maiden is interesting and sort of harmonically pleasant it's not anything i would ever want to play but i appreciate it but slayer i think that what you're sort of probably catching on to and what i think is sort of the brilliant part of their their lead work is that sure it's fucking fast as shit and you could argue that like you know that they're just sort of masturbating in the way that an ingvament would masturbate um in that kind of style of lead but actually it's sort of deceptive because those leads are incredibly fucking melodic i can hum them to you as fast as they are because what's happening is you know the fastness is all happening within a certain key 
or, or a certain scale even. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you just find the root note of that and you're humming it. So, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, it's very fucking, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I like this kind of solo. Like I, I love a whammy bar. I love a pinch harmonic. I got a fucking Jackson Dinky under the bed right here, you know? Uh, and, yeah. and, but so like, this is like, question do you like carrie king solo versus uh like a dimebag daryl <laughs> oh i mean who's, I who's the like king pantera. of the whammy i've never i've never liked pantera so oh really? okay i see i'm a, i got a soft spot for pantera i think a new level might be one of the the hardest songs of all time but, so i think the difference between pantera and slayer to me besides speed is um that Pantera always just sort of reeked of toxic masculinity. <laughs> right. Well, they they are more of like a like a sludgey, like they have moments of kind of like groove metal. You know what I mean? But like, it's just like it didn't it didn't like I have certain. Uh, it's interesting. Like it's very rare to me that music cuts me off, and when I say that, I mean it this way. I mean that we all come from different places, different identity centers different mixes of who you are and sometimes music is made in such a way that you can't find your entry of access into it right mm -hmm. so like um i'm trying to think of someone with that because i was actually having this conversation with a friend of mine from germany who was in town and he was talking about a specific artist who i don't want to name but you know i just said like look i respect what they do but it almost felt too white. <laughs> and I don't know how to quantify that, but all it means is that it's so of his experience and that experience feels so foreign to mine yeah. that I can't find my way into the song. Yeah. And that's not to say that he's doing something wrong or that he shouldn't be doing that expression. It's just to say that my relationship to his music is sort of cut off at the knees. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I'll never forget a mutual friend of all of us, Evan Weiss, pointing out. He was like, "Yeah, do you ever listen to like the riff from Walk? Like, it sounds racist." <laughs> <laughs> he was like that. I mean, that's hilarious. But I mean, I, I sort of there's that's music's a fucking weird thing, man. Yeah. It really can communicate. And as somebody who's primarily a guitar player or keyboard player someone who primarily writes music and not lyrics or vocals it's very it's always been very important to me that to understand the way in which i can communicate pieces of myself through music and music alone yes yeah. so to say that a riff sounds racist that doesn't sound crazy to me at all <laughs> that's, that's like so good we are still communicating something through the music yeah yeah it's uh I just love, I mean, it, the fact that Rick Rubin did this is is hilarious. And also, like, reading up on some of that, and Kerry King, like, did the guitar on No Sleep Till Brooklyn. Like, he ended up doing yeah. a bunch of stuff with the Beastie Boys, which is wild. Like, just that crossover of of all of this stuff happening at the same time is so, so cool. What, what do you think, I, what do you think the biggest uh, Rick Rubin fingerprints are on this record? Apparently he didn't have that many. Right. He had some input, but he said a lot of it fell on the engineer who did like a really good job with it. Mm. Um but Yeah, I and I've I've honestly like I've 
I don't, I'm not going to take, put this person on blast either. I have a friend who worked with Rick Rubin and, uh, and basically his experience was like, yeah, I mean, basically the engineer did everything and Rick yeah. would come at the end of the day and just listen yeah. to the mixes and just sit there like a Buddha and then be like, okay, I like this one. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I mean, that that's, especially now that definitely is the Rick Rubin way. I think someone described how he like, just called on speakerphone like once a session, you know. Right, <laughs> like, right, right. But uh, I mean, he seemed a little more hands-on back in these days because I think he literally, I think he sought out, um, he sought out Slayer to get him on Def Jam, and I think he brought. I would think that his, I would think that his fingerprint mostly, honestly, is just probably his encouragement for them to be as extreme as they want to be. Yeah, and I think also um, they talked about another person of kind of more of the uh you know realm we exist in is uh glennie friedman did their photos too like he was friends with rick rubin and got slayer to do their first like photo shoot during this time too that kind of cemented who they were as well and it you know he's famous for photographing fugazi and stuff you know and it's right really cool just this weird crossover but uh i think i think the biggest fingerprints to answer andrew's question from what i did in my little research i did was i think it might have been during angel of death he specifically raised the levels on the drums to make the drums more present and i think it makes a big difference because he i think not to misquote it or whatever but who, who cares um he says like distorted guitars sound loud no matter what volume they're at but drums are a natural instrument mm-hmm. so by raising them in the mix, it made the drums more prominent and the guitars kind of blended in with it. But apparently that's what he claims to be the big, the big difference, you know, when you have a drummer like that, um, like, you know, I mean, the drums on this record are just monstrous. Yeah. And it, it, it's like to have them any lower in the mix would have been insane. Yeah. Because they kind of are carrying the song a lot. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in a way that the guitars can't, you know, because when you're dealing with speed, you're dealing with tempo. And when you're dealing with tempo, you're dealing with drums. And like you said, the guitars are kind of following the drums lead in a lot of way, you know? And that absolutely it's and I think he said uh, that the drummer, I think on the previous record to this was his first time using a double bass pedal. Which is hilarious. Well, he killed it. Yeah, yeah. I think he he, he did pretty well because, like, the double bass at the end of Angel of Death, that like that entire so fucking good. drum fill is insane. Oh, I mean, the so first good. time I, that song. I mean, fuck. You could just like forget the album, just that song. You're just like, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, like even from that that initial scream is just like. I mean, I remember hearing that for the first time and just being like, "What in the world have I stepped into?" This was like. <laughs> 20 seconds into the fucking song and he's yeah. just like ah! and, you know, I was like fuck <laughs> well it is it is yeah. funny and and this is uh something we've come across on a lot of the albums we talked about on this podcast is just like seeing the fingerprints on so much stuff afterwards you know right. a lot of these and and same deal with like the scream intro just like the way he like rides the symbols in certain parts like it just reverberated through every heavy record that like came off to this record you know there's so Who much there? even like their their concept of groove on this record i think is yeah. like super like i'm a groove person i'm okay. like you know i've always said to... that about you no <laughs> if you listen to my music you'll see like i i give a shit i play 
what we're talking about playing like when the guitars are stitched to the drums that's how i play mm -hmm. my guitars are stitched to the drums when when i'm playing and i have in-ear monitors on it's kick snare vocal and me that's wow it. that's cool i don't want to hear anything else <laughs> and i'm telling and so, scott <laughs> he knows everyone knows <laughs> that's all i listen to I need the vocal for like any vocal cues and stuff, but otherwise I need to be stitched with the snare and the kick. And that's the only thing I give a shit about. And so this record is that for sure. Yeah. Like the drum, the drums and the guitars are very, very stitched. And so from a groove perspective, you have like there, when they go into these little halftime stuff, like in necrophobic or criminally insane. And you're like, it's like a diff. It's still this sort of like fucking pounding it's not it's a groove but it's like a boom 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 boom, boom. you know you're just like fuck this shit is relentless <laughs> i love hearing you talk about it it's so good like, i also like i also like watching your entire apartment shake as you're getting excited um, i mean yeah. i it, the record still excites me like this far later it's yeah. that you know listening to it again this week i was just like yeah man it's like fucking you know, this is what I want. I love that sort of like, it's relentless. And yet there's also still a flow to it. And that's like impossible to do. Like, it's really, really fucking hard. Like every night on stage, when you're writing a set list, you're trying to create something that feels relentless, but that still has a flow. Yeah. And most nights you don't get there. So to write a record like that, and to just, you know, encapsulate it perfectly in mm -hmm. fucking 26 minutes or whatever it was, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's just un, unrepeatable. Almost. It does. Yeah. It is definitely like a, like a lightning in a bottle record. Like this couldn't, you know, you can't do it again. Yeah. And, yeah. If, and, if, and if somebody else did, it would seem, you know, just not like parody. As, uh... Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's the vocal style I want to touch on as well. Cause it's also crazy like the amount of words they cram into a song as short as they are and as fast as they are is is pretty impressive like really crazy vocabulary as well um uh, oh well uh, yeah i mean that was that's sort of like a weird death metal black metal thing yeah. we're still like i i was so i lately i've been reading a lot of uh black metal books and like just listening to a lot of like um you know, sort of like the progression of black. I'm really into like just music and I yeah. just like going deep, but I was reading, um, fuck, what band was this? I, was it like, it was it, maybe it was emperor. I was listening to either emperor or Marduk, one of those bands and like, uh, and I, and Spotify has the little thing now where you can click on a microphone and it gives you the lyrics, it gives you the lyrics. Yeah. And, and I'm like reading the lyrics and I'm just like, what the fuck does that word even mean? <laughs> like, what is that? Like, and, and, you know, Slayer, like, uh, in Angel of Death, they use that word, abassinate. And I'm like, what yeah. the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what does yeah. it mean to abassinate? I had to look it up. I was like, I don't know. I, I think I saw some like blinding someone and torture. Yeah. I <laughs> apparently, I looked into it and apparently, yeah, it's some like really obscure word that means to like put like a hot iron plate over someone's eyes or something <laughs> and apparently though it's like it's it's like one of the few times that word is actually ever used in written media 
it's like i mean where do you find that where i mean yeah. i guess he must have found it in a in a book about like, the third yeah, Reich like or a medieval but, textbook or some shit uh but it's still just like insane to be like a bassinate what yeah. the fuck yeah <laughs> and, and there's there's a lot of moments like that on this record and yeah it is it is kind of a thing that's that's synonymous with metal i always remember uh the band white chapel their first record like very much like a death metal you know uh death core i guess would probably be the most accurate genre but like it the guy's literally reading a medical textbook you know <laughs> like the record's so, called the right, somatic so- defilement like it's very it's very medical terminology in with with breakdowns you know so I actually looked this up because I wanted to be uh, I think this is really funny when you talk about the, the lyrics of Slayer and obviously like we started talking about Angel of Death. So I think about the cadence for that yeah. song, you know, Auschwitz, the meaning of pain, the way that I want you to die. Yeah. Slow death, immense decay. You know, it's yeah. like very like it's like a list. Yeah. And so like I actually uh, on July 17th, I, I made this tweet and I thought it was kind of it reminded me of this because i don't know what's i forget what song this was this maybe this was also emperor but it said um my favorite thing about black metal is that the lyrics literally just sound like a to-do list and then i have like (laughs) i have like all these check marks next to golgotha golgotha burning slaughter the lamb invasion unreal a pestilence of ariman genocide unreal pestilence of lucifer burned alive Oh, done, man. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Laundry like, apples. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's you know that's sort of like, because when you're dealing with you know blast beats or like songs that are that big, like how yeah. the fuck do you sing to that? Well, it's yeah. gonna have to be like you got to set your own tempo yeah Yeah. (laughs) like the vocals aren't stitched to the music almost you know like the the rest of it is. But yeah, yeah, there's got to be something to sort of contrast all the speed. Yeah. Well, it's it's very interesting too. On uh, well, it kind of reminds me of. Uh, are you familiar with the the newer band Soul Glow? Uh, I haven't really deep dived, but I know who they are. Okay, yeah, like I think something on their on their newest record, which is incredible. Uh, there's something like five thousand five hundred words on the record, and it's like a, it's right. also like a thirty minute punk record. That's so fast, and the, there's there's like yeah, like it's. 800 words per song or something like well i remember actually listening to um or when that bright eyes record lifted came out uh-huh. and like opening the lyric sheet and being like how the fuck does he memorize all these <laughs> oh, words yeah. like yeah there's literally like every song it's just like an essay there, there and there's a, no chorus <laughs> yeah there's a there's a long-running joke i i i had when i was touring with my friend's band dads and we were joking about like like the band La dispute in the same way like highly poetic but just like a text block you know and we used to joke about the the screamo teleprompter you know (laughs) (laughs) i mean it wouldn't surprise me like you there are definitely bands where that would be necessary like where your lyrics are so dense just packed with like how do you remember all that shit it's circle takes a square i don't know how they did it oh yeah same same kind of idea or i guess well i guess there's like three singers singing different true parts, they, they so. can each remember uh, their those, own parts those lyric Cheating. books were like you know a little too thick for a for a punk band you know yeah the uh yeah uh rain and like the song raining blood though i mean yeah fucking you all timer obviously but just the combination of like how can we make this heavier it's like lining up 
the music to actual like thunderclaps, you know, just right. adds this weight <laughs> to everything, this heaviness. And but it what's so funny though is like I hadn't remember the last time I listened to like the album version of this, and it just so abruptly cuts off and just yeah. goes into like a rainstorm. <laughs> You know, right. <laughs> but it, it, it's such it like that's the one thing I think could be a little better is that it, it is such an I mean, it's probably, you know, intentional, but it is cut so abruptly, you know, you guys do you guys remember the uh, YouTube video where somebody had synced up their Christmas lights with uh, raining blood? No, that sounds amazing. No. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Uh, I'll send it to both of you after this. It's a it's a triumph of of human spirit. If I can be honest, have, have you have you have you ever heard the Tori Amos cover of that? Song? I was Absolutely listening to not. that. I was listening to that before we got on today because I was looking up uh, people who've covered it. Because I always knew the Reggie and the Full Effect cover of Rain and Blood. I've that never was a heard fun. That. I, I saw him do it live years and years ago. But uh, but yeah, the Tori Amos cover, incredible. <laughs> I mean, I mean what I love about it is that like I don't even recognize it as Rainy Oh, it's unrecognizable. <laughs> like, like it just feels like a completely different you, song. You don't but... actually understand that she's doing Rain and Blood until she says the word reprisal. Right. And then it clicks. Right. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's like a minute 20 right. in. It's a, it's like a six right. and a half minute version of a two and a half minute song, you know? <laughs> because it's slow. Yep, it's very slow. That's the... But that <laughs> But that's Rain and Blood is also one of the longer songs on the record because it's slower. And because there's 45 seconds of of like someone's right. <laughs> sharper image rainstorm sound uh, sound effect maker, you know. Uh, but yeah, that Tori Amos record's fucking bizarre. She did a whole bunch of like covers, and one of them was '97 Bonnie and Clyde by Eminem, the song about like murdering his wife, who is like talking to his kid in the car, and she's doing all the spoken word parts. It's very very unsettling. I, I definitely I feel like Tori Amos. We've been actually talking about her a lot. She came up because um, Jessica Hopper uh, directed this series um, called Women Who Rock mm-hmm. that's been airing. Uh, it's like a four-part series, and Tori Amos was on it a lot. And my partner asked me to, if I'd ever listened to Tori Amos, and I was like, yeah, in the 90s, I was uh, I, I was very obsessed with sort of like all-female singer-songwriters mm-hmm. in the 90s. and uh, But Tori Amos especially, because I felt like she was... Um, you know, she was basically like to me, American Kate Bush with a piano. Okay. Like she was just sort of like, "What the fuck kind of song is this?" Kind of yeah, you know, oh, song yeah. like an iconoclast, which I like, loved. Yeah, yeah. And you were always just like, "How is this big? Like, how are pe- how is how do all of you in this room really like this? I don't believe it." You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It- um, but it was nice to have something that you felt like you could connect to the mainstream culture with while also feeling like it was countercultural. Yeah, she sort of has sure. a nice way of, 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 of sort of stepping she just in that divide. does her own thing and then like occasionally puts out a record hit, you know, <laughs> like, a, like right. a radio hit. And then like it allows her to keep doing another whole list of weird projects, you know, and that oh, yeah, when, when Jawbox covered her, I was very like this. I love that. That's yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> I love that we get on here to talk about Slayer and end up talking about Tori Amos. I mean, you know, <laughs> it just shows our range. Well, you know? Speaking we, of covers, we can talk about mayhem. I, 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 there's still a lot we can talk about. I there's only still... want to talk about Burzum for the next uh, half an hour. The um, d- did you speaking of covers, though, did you ever listen to the Slayer cover record? They did a Slayer whole record of like record. punk. Covers. Oh, the punk covers. Yeah, 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 yeah. And where they covered like Minor Threat, and it's very, yeah. very weird. Apparently, Ian MacKay was very mad. 
because really? they covered they covered to sign off on that. Well, they covered <laughs> guilty of being white, which doesn't really help, uh, you know, uh, Slayer's little weird white supremacy uh, miscommunications. But well, okay, so I mean, like, I feel like that's something that's interesting to me about Slayer too, and that, like, as a young kid, I was more aware of than yeah. maybe other people because of the fact that I'm Latino, and I feel like. Slayer has been like almost ritualistically erased as being half Latino. Oh yeah, and no, I think one of the members is like Chilean, right? Yeah, and yeah. My, my I'm half Chilean, so that was like a really big deal to me. Like he yeah. was born in Chile, yeah, and like his name is fucking Enrique. It's not Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or actually, maybe it it, it might be Tomas. It's Tomas, I think yeah. it's, his name is Tomas, and it, Enrique is maybe his middle name or the other way around, but I'm not sure. But the point being is that, like, I knew that, like, he was Latino. I knew that Dave Lombardo was Latino. They met at a fucking Latino social club, like, you know, listening to salsa. Yeah. This this is not, like, the story of, like, you know, fucking, you know, Varg Burzum, who yeah, changed yeah. his name to Varg because his real name is Christian. And he was like, I can't have the name <laughs> Christian. <laughs> yeah, that's you cannot Take happen. your street cred right out of there. Yeah, it's... Yeah. It, that's definitely the the thing with you know they they get a lot of shit for Angel of Death you know and they're like where like because I think uh, yeah I forget who who in the band said it but they're like yeah like we're not saying anything that's untrue like we're listing what happened and they're like do you need us to tell uh, tell you that like Mengele was a bad guy <laughs> like it's obvious I did I read I read that interview today yeah, yeah, where he's, he's like, like we didn't we didn't want to call the song angel of death slash bad guy yeah and it's like <laughs> we don't need to tell it's you inferred. that the things he did was bad we're just literally right. like it's like it's a documentary song it's about what happened look right. i did i, I mean, did like, hear the word aryan and i called dan and i was like dan is this a white power record just Andrew got really he thought he was he was getting spooked he was on a list I, mean, uh, I don't want to get canceled. You know, there's a song called Altar of Sacrifice. It's like there was no doubt in my mind that there were no altars of sacrifice in the guys in Slayer's house. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I, I also think that that's something that's that's an interesting also uh, way of delineating a little bit like Rain and Blood from some some of the other stuff. And and the fact is that black metal these days does have a fascist slash neo Nazi component. Yeah, that does exist. Um, but I think that the delineation for me is that Slayer represented a type of, first of all, Slayer's not black metal, right? So no. Slayer, like by definition, they would be like speed metal or death metal, but certainly not black metal. Black metal is a, is, it's an aesthetic and it's also a, it's a lifestyle, right? Yeah. People who play black metal, um, are usually literally Satanists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and Slayer have never claimed to be that. Um, if anything, I feel like I almost remember Tom Araya saying something about being Catholic. I think one um, of them in, in the band is Catholic. I mean, yeah. Totally checks. Yeah. And so, the, but the point being is that like, who better than a Catholic to understand the, the imagery of Satanism yeah. as an inversion of Christianity. Yeah. Right. So where Christianity has mass, Satanism has black mass, you know, not angels, but demons. Yeah, yeah. You know, not and and Satan itself is is a word that in Hebrew means adversary. So it it it's a relational sort of uh, 
ideology. It, yeah. Everything about, and specifically everything about the Anton LaVey Church of Satan is in relation to the church. The yeah, it's church. it's the Christ and the Antichrist. Like, it's literally exactly. the mirror image, you know? Yeah, and there's not, like, a spiritual component to Satanism. Right, to, like, it's to not... To the Church of Satan, to, to, to Anton LaVey's version of Satanism, that's not a spiritual right. situation. That's almost like a... I would almost call it, like, humanistic hedonism. Sure. Yes. Yeah. It's... it's it's very sort of like more about the power inside of you and, and reclaiming your power and sort of not bowing down to anyone. Um, and and that's, you know, I read the Satanic Bible when I was a kid and I was like, oh, okay. There's no yeah, Satan it's, it's more it's about being like a chill. good person and like good <laughs> yeah. to other people as well. It's, it's very interesting. Totally. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like, it's wild that the Satanic Bible teaches you how to be a better person than like, <laughs> the Christian Bible <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's I mean, not completely. much punishment in the in the in the the Satanic Bible, you know. But there's mm. a lot of a lot of self flagellation going on in the Catholic. Yeah, one, nobody's, you know? nobody's nobody's stoning adulterers in. Uh, <laughs> and so in, and in so Satanic this Bible. this was the, this was the thing for me. So I so I'm gay, and being gay is very anti Christian, and I knew as a child I had known that I was gay since I was fucking five years old really mm -hmm. um so by the time i was discovering venom and merciful fate and slayer and all this stuff i knew i was gay and there was a part of me that's sort of like you know still the indoctrinated part of me uh from christianity that very much felt like um being gay is evil therefore i am evil and there was this sense of that's where my curiosity about Satanism really came from. Because I was kind of like, all right, well, I guess I'm fucking going to hell anyway. Yeah, I'm in this camp. <laughs> like, I knew from an early age that I was gay and that that, that was never going to fucking change. Yeah. <laughs> and so, in my mind, I was fucking the damned. Walking. Might as well cozy and, up to the side that accepts me, you know? <laughs> like, and and the fact is, the Church of Satan has been pro-gay since its inception in 1966. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I was like, okay, it's home. Let's go here. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I remember... You know, reading the Satanic Bible and and really feeling that way, like really feeling like, wow, like this is actually a very chill book. Like this isn't <laughs> as badass as, as the cover would suggest. Yeah, exactly. You know? um, and so and so so Satanism for me, you know, it, it the inversion of Christianity version of Satanism was very attractive yeah. because I looked at being queer as an inversion of Christian heterosexuality. And so it was in the same sort of wheelhouse as what Slayer were doing. You, isn't it? It, it blows my mind how much like self identity gets wrapped up into religion. Like it shouldn't, you know, I, I like it makes sense now that I've just said those words out loud. Yeah, it, it totally makes sense. But like, <laughs> there's a there's a fundamental principle about like only God can judge people, which is just for the judgiest possible group of people seems yeah, right. so antithetical and it never really you know my mom was the worst judge of them all like she really was and you know she was the one where you know as a kid again i knew coming out to her meant the end of our relationship there was no way about it i knew that she would cut me off immediately and sure enough i didn't come out to her until i was 30 and that was the last time we spoke so it was like that sense of 
I mean, to me, if you're if if I'm being real, that's a, that's hatred in your heart. 100%. That is yeah. not God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to me, Satanism was more Christian. <laughs> yeah. And and so there was a period where yes, listening to this felt taboo, and then there was a period where listening to this felt empowering. Yeah. Where it absolutely. felt like no, actually, these guys got it right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And it was shocking and it was meant to shock and it was meant to, to be, you know, controversial and whatever, all these things that it was. Um, but ultimately, you know, that's sort of what Levian Satanism really is. You know, Levian Satanism was basically a way of, you know, putting Christianity on blast, um, you know, in, a, in the most sort of visual and sort of shocking way possible as the way to reevaluate the entire thing as an institution. Yeah. And and it works. It works. In in my, if you can get over that sort of initial layer of being like, ooh, Halloween. Just like the facade. Spooky, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then you can actually understand. And I think like the um that one uh not the Levain Church of Satan, but what's the other church that does all the political stuff? Oh, where they, oh they, yeah, I know what you're talking about. With um, the Baphomet statue in like the Yeah. I know I know what you're talking about. I'm not sure the actual Is that a separate Church of Satan? Yeah. They like have the Church own... of Satan from Twitter, which is where I feel like they do <laughs> most, <laughs> most Well there's there's there is the Church of Satan, which is which belongs to Anton LeVay's right. group. That's yeah. that's the original Church of Satan. And yeah. then there are other sects. So there's like one church of Satan called the Temple of Set, which is Michael Aquinas, who is a former member of LeVay's Church of mm-hmm. Satan, but he wanted to focus more on, I don't remember what aspect, but some sort of ancient pre-Christian aspect of, of sort of society that the Temple of Set represents. Um, maybe more paganism, I guess. And then you have this other, uh, you know, but it sounds like the church of Satan. So I, I sort of just forget what it's called, but I yeah. watched the movie about them and there was a whole thing about I them. I think I watched the, to the documentary, but yeah, I think their whole thing the, is the founder mostly... is, is his name is Michael Graves. I, I know yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, but yeah, their whole thing is a lot Not Michael of Graves from the misfits, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Their, their whole thing is, is kind of like, well, if Christianity gets representation in our like government, you know, all religions should hence right. you know if we're if we're gonna have a, a ten commandments on our courthouse steps we're gonna have a baphomet that the children can hang out with in the in the lobby you right. know and right. it's kind of like and so like right now they're doing that thing where in florida was it in, i don't know if it was in florida uh the supreme court recently ruled in favor of a football coach who uh was doing a prayer after games yeah um and so they ruled in his favor, and now the Church of Satan is suing because they want to do a satanic prayer yeah. on the football field. Yeah. It kind of it <laughs> keeps it in check, you know? But it's, it's yeah, the Christianity is so ingrained in our fucking country that, like, that seems shocking. That, like, why can't we have the Christian prayer, but we, you know, but the Satan prayer is... is right. That's and, the and, shocking one. And their one. whole it's point like, is, their whole point is freedom for everyone or freedom for no one. Exactly. Yeah. And no no one gets domination of, of religious discourse in this country, which I think yeah. is completely fair. 100%. And it's not censorship. It's basically just saying either we all have the same playing field or we don't. Yep. Exactly. So, and it, yeah, it's calling, it's calling out, uh, you know, hypocrisy, essentially. Yeah. So... Let me let me switch gears here for a minute because I wanted to make sure we touched on the album cover 
or like the visual component mm-hmm. to this record. Okay. Um, famously, band hated it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it's fucking great. I think it's great. <laughs> um, well, the artists ended I... up doing like their next four records after it too. Though. Is that so they didn't true? I was gonna say it looks a lot like uh, South yeah. Of they they initially didn't like it. I think they said it was too satanic looking or something. They they they, they, they called the odd uh, yeah they called the artist like a sick individual or something. Yeah, who and was they, the they, artist? Um, you know? Oh god, I, I have to look it up right here. The, he. Uh, I thought one of the funnier parts was that they they made fun of like he was he's also like a political artist like a political um, cartoonist no i think i think it's mostly like fine art satire if you will okay. yeah i know he does a lot i looked him up and he does a lot of sculpture work now i mean to be truth i'm i'm truthful i'm looking at it right now and it, it sort of actually reminds me of jordan isip's work like you know that's uh that he's done like um like bad trip records he did like oh, okay. uh he did i don't know if you saw that moondog seven inch he did the art for that oh like, that was him it's, yeah okay. there's like he did a bunch of stuff he did uh he did something for threadbare too okay um but yeah i mean it's sort of like has that similar sort of almost like uh almost like, like a woodcut vibe yeah a little bit uh a serious political illustrator lawrence larry carroll Okay. Never heard of him. But I like that it's like, it looks like he's got the Pope in hell. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it kind of has like, yeah, like a Francis Bacon-esque kind of like color palette. Um, Yeah. I I think, uh, funny enough, if you look in the very top left corner, there's like a severed head. And people thought that it looks kind of like the Jane Doe face. And they they oh, apparently oh. claimed Jake Bannon ripped it off, uh, but it was actually and like a photo from a I fashion mean, it magazine. Does look similar, but yeah, I have seen the photo that he, that he took. Yeah, that that actually, yeah. that rocked the world when that came out uh, a few months ago. <laughs> that was a weird time to be on Twitter for like it, yeah. those few days. Well, my favorite thing was like when the 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 woman who was the original inspiration was like, "Oh, I guess this is like a thing," and all these weird simps came out and they're like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry that they took your image, but I love blah, blah, blah. And they're like, I totally support you, but I just want to let you know that you're like a piece of history and I have your face tattooed on my arm. Check your DMS. Like (laughs) it was just embarrassing for, for all, all parties involved. But, uh, but yeah, the album art, I think it, it became as ubiquitous as the record in terms of like the stylistic choices and like that Slayer mm-hmm. fucking pentagram sword logo. Like it just, there's they just a, did it right across the board, I think is. Yeah. Is, I mean, there's a, there's an interesting p- part of something I read uh, about this album cover was saying that like it's contemporaries were using like cartoon imagery. Like mm. they brought up an Exodus record that had like it was like a cartoon of two babies. Yeah. And like, blood, yeah. And it's like Slayer completely changed the trajectory of album art for the genre on yeah. this. Well, it's definitely like in the like when Celtic Frost did that one record with the Geiger uh mm. thing on it. And like, you know, just that sort of there was definitely a move towards because there were legitimate artists that were doing dark work mm-hmm. that weren't like yeah like that weird 
there is a weird cartoony to some of those early records because they, you know, the illustrators, it almost looked like that sort of airbrushed things you get at the fair. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some, some board, boardwalk t-shirt art. If, if we go back in time and remember that time, we also remember that, like, you know, all the cool kids had fucking airbrushed denim jackets right. with like their favorite huge. albums, yeah, like, yeah. you know, like put on it, like master puppets airbrushed on my denim jacket or like whatever it was. So, you know, the styles of the times, the, like rain and blood is much harder to airbrush than bonded by blood. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so I think that that's, that's definitely something I feel they, you know, Slayer don't get, enough credit especially in black metal world because black metal world kind of rejected them in a lot of ways because they were one because they were sort of like they had reached this upper echelon of being in the big four yeah right and that and that's that was almost like you know commercial success to a lot of black metal bands was was totally like a no-no yeah um but the the other element was the aesthetic element which was that this record is well produced it's fucking precise as fuck. Mm. Like it is technical as fuck. Yeah. Like these are not amateur musicians. This is like full on, like um, a, a record for almost virtuosic heavy metal playing. Yep. And black metal as an aesthetic kind of was based around Venom and Bathory, who were not precise, not technical not virtuosic at all <laughs> good yeah i love venom and bathory <laughs> but you know but then it became this arms race to the bottom so if you listen to like dark throne or you know mayhem or like the the early sort of like scandinavian metal bands that were doing bl proper black metal it was almost it, it was like an inversion of slayer it yeah. was like we're not doing the levain church of satan we literally worship satan that's yeah. the first thing like yeah. we just want to make that clear we worship satan <laughs> and then the second thing is we're going to record everything like it was fucking recorded in a fucking dungeon oh, so and the, the biggest hang-up of, of black metal for me is is just the lo-fi recordings are so bad and I was I was reading I can't remember what band this was but I was reading a story about a band where the the guitar player in this band had been previously in a very technical death metal band but he wanted to be black metal yeah so he literally had to sort of just like play stupid like he had to <laughs> figure out how to fucking play his guitar un yeah. as untechnical as possible yeah 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 to be to be true black metal oh yeah some um, of that black metal stuff it just it literally it's recorded in a way that it all sounds like white noise essentially you know yeah it's it's wild well, i i wrote a i wrote a thing for um so i don't know if you've ever heard you probably have never heard this record soft pink truth uh it's drew daniel um from matmos who's um collaborated with bjork and like different people he's like a you know electronic artist um anyway soft pink truth is sort of his for lack of a better term his house music side project but okay. it's not really house music anyway so some years ago he wrote an album called uh it was why do the heathens rage and it was a electronic covers album of like dark throne mayhem okay like all the like norwegian black metal bands i have heard and of this yeah 
and and so because he did one for hardcore and punk too like yeah um, I, where he did like crass and minor threat and I, rudimentary penai and like all those stuff yeah i think i was but going he, through a bjork thing and i like remember stumbling upon this kind of th- I, like this side <laughs> trajectory <laughs> yeah so one of the things that i i found out about that record because i wrote about it for the talk house um was that there was a song and I don't remember who wrote it, but it was a, it was one of the Scandinavian black metal bands, and the sound and the recording and the playing was so awful and degraded and just whatever that he had to hire someone <laughs> to try to create some kind of notation because he was like, I have no idea what yeah. note to even play. Oh so he God. just like, and I don't remember, he just he hired some sort of professional to try to create some sort of notation. So that's not Slayer. That's not- <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've it, that that makes me feel like I've been missing out on black metal this whole time. <laughs> yeah, we could have cashed yeah. in years ago. Yeah, this is great. Uh, uh, so I don't know about you. I think I think we're we're winding down or we're going a little long. I I only have one more question for Norman. I don't know about you, Andrew. I have like ten. So, so hit me. <laughs> <laughs> No, you can go, Andrew. I'll, I'll save mine. No, for no, last. I was, I was. That was what All we right. in the industry call f- humor. Oh. <laughs> uh. Uh, so, <laughs> so my last question, uh, Norman, uh, do you consider Carrie King to be the original short king? <laughs> I, you know what? I've met Carrie King, and I don't remember him being that short. <laughs> I think he's five six. I think he's really? five six. I don't, I, yeah. it's, that I mean, that might have registered, but for some reason did not. I so he's got a okay, big so personality. He, that's why. I guess it depends here, on what the, shoes you were wearing at the time. True. <laughs> I, I probably well, it was in the '90s, so <laughs> I was I was sponsored by Converse in the '90s, and I wore oh, nothing but Converse. No fucking all, way. Is that for entire real? decade? Buried yeah, the lead on the shoe real. conversation there. Um, but so this was this was also sort of a weird um, intersection in my history is that um when texas is the reason was going through our bidding war and all that stuff we were also going through not a bidding war per se but a war between managers who wanted to manage us and one of the people in play was rick sales and um his co-manager don robertson who managed slayer slayer was the only band they managed and they wanted to manage texas is the reason wow (laughs) and so of course i wanted to take that meeting yeah yeah and 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 through them slayer played at irving plaza during that time and uh and so i went to go meet them and hung out with slayer um at that time and so and i was completely just shocked and amazed to find how uh just educated and sort of knowledgeable slayer was about hardcore i mean we were just talking about hardcore the whole time it was amazing and um and then a few years later a friend of mine was touring in Europe and they were playing a festival that Slayer was playing. And he went up to Carrie King to say hello. And um and Carrie recognized him as someone who would know me and said, Wait, so you you know Norm? And my friend was like, What? That's cool. <laughs> and, he said, and he said, Any friend of Norm's a friend of mine. And wow, I was like, Man. that's awesome. I, wow. I say that often. <laughs> yeah. That totally checks out. Man. I think so I that was a, that was a very that was a very sort amazing. of like wow. I, I whatever history I have with Slayer, that felt where it felt fully 
realized at that moment. That's wow. Well, now I know what I'm going to say when I inevitably meet Carrie King at some point. Is <laughs> we got uh, we got uh, mutual friends. Well, over at here. this point, it's been 20 years later, so he's going to be like, "Who?" <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to leave it off. What do you What do you think, Andrew? Uh, I, think I think this has been another exciting episode of talking footwear with Norman Brand. So <laughs> yeah, I think ready. I think we should cut it off uh, dramatically with um, thunder. Just <laughs> you know, uh, my wife has a really great like rain sounds uh, yeah. thing we listen to when we sleep. Yeah. Uh, that violently every once in a while the creator's like, "Hi." You're listening to my Rain Sounds album. <laughs> Maybe that's the move here. Yeah, yeah. Pay for the f- the premium version without the, yeah, uh, the advertising. Uh, so, <laughs> Norman, absolute pleasure. What do you got to plug? What What should people check out? Um, right now, I'm just going on tour for the rest of the year with Thursday. Okay. Um, hopefully next year there'll be some sort of movement on this antimatter stuff. Hell yeah! And uh, and I'm still working on production, so. Uh, I actually have turned in a remix to a band and I'm sort of waiting to see whether or not that remix gets the green light. Um, Amazing. And if it does, it's a, it's a band from this world. So we'll Ooh. see what happens. Any, anytime you want to remix our intro, you're, you're more than welcome to <laughs> yeah. get some of those Sounds Norman good. Brennan fingerprints all over it. Yeah, you know? we need to get, it's just going to have thunder. Yeah, like, that's perfect. <laughs> we need to get Norman and Nick offer to do like a co uh, a co remix. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, definitely go check out Thursday on tour. Uh, I can certified say that it's a, it's a good ass show. So <laughs> and my uh, knee is back in commissions. We're good. Yeah, yeah. Now we're we the finally... right shoes. Hell yeah. yeah. Pay attention to footwear here, everybody. Yep, it's very important. Uh, Andrew, what do you got the plug? Um, I do a, a weekly podcast called Run Into the Ground. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, Anywhere your podcast yeah, is sold. Right. Uh, although I can't imagine using anything other than those two outlets. Um, Unless one wants to follow- pay us to promote it specifically. I'm in. Um, you can find us on Twitter at run in the number two, the ground uh, on Instagram. I've run into the ground. I also drop the ball on doing the Facebook so that all everybody's parents can listen to the episodes. Um, I will 100% get that done this week. Uh, how about you, Daniel? Uh, you can follow me at Dan Bassini on Twitter and Instagram, danbassini.com. Uh, you can buy my zines. Uh, newest one, No Invite Volume 8, is out now. Uh, dwindling stock of, of copies of I Still Feel It and uh, Cruel Summer and a few other back catalog issues are running low, so don't don't hesitate. Uh, and yeah, please rate, review, subscribe. We got our new mixtape in the description now. And uh, yeah, Yo, and it it's, out. I gotta be honest, it's good. It's a good mixtape. It's less weird than usual, if I can be honest. <laughs> well, that's—I mean, it's got like Venetian snares on it, so you know True. It's on that. And it's got—it's got some new line original. So new uh, line. No, Jesus <laughs> Christ! Oh my God! We've been potting. It's got new line cinemas on there. Be sure to check it out. It should be. <laughs> we were actually going to change the name to uh, to New End. We were like, so if there was another record, we were going to chop the original off, and it was just going to be New End. But wow. I, I like it. <laughs> There's still time. Sense. So did we. So we were just right. like, damn, we wish we realized that earlier. Man. So, 
Oh boy. Well, All well, right. Well, Norman, thanks so much for hanging out. This was awesome. Thank you. This was a fucking blast. Welcome back anytime if you think of any other records that changed our life in any way. Yeah, you need to find another masterpiece because yeah. this is great. <laughs> um, oh man, I feel like well, I learned so much about black metal too. So hopefully we all learned a little something. Awesome. Well, until next time, uh, bye bye. <laughs>